Hey everyone, this is your host Frank Strong and I thought it was important to let you know that the interview you are about to hear was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic took off. Hopefully most of you will welcome the fact that this interview will have absolutely nothing to do with the pandemic, but I thought it was important that you have that context first. Welcome everyone to episode two of the Boots About Business podcast. On today's show, we have Fred Wellman, who's had an impressive career in uniform. He too is a graduate of West Point. I promise you it's not going to be the West Point show. It just happened to have two folks from West Point that stood up. He went on to serve as a helicopter pilot and later as a public affairs officer, where he was a spokesperson for Generals David Petraeus and Martin Dempsey. He has since gone on to make a dent in the business community as an entrepreneur and as a veteran. Welcome, Fred Wellman. Great to be here, Frank. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So let's get right down to business. Let me ask, what caused you to join the service? Man, you know, my father was a World War II veteran of the Marine Corps. And so we kind of grew up in the shadow of military service. So I always had my eye on it. But, you know, the funny thing is I dreamed of flying. As a child, I grew up in St. Louis as they tested the F-15s there at McDonnell Douglas then. And my dad would actually take me down to the airport back in the day. We watched them test fly the aircraft. So I was always a dreamer. And I decided to focus on the military academies. And I went to a job fair, a career fair, and the Air Force Academy cadets weren't nice. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, you know, there's no way to cut it, you know. And over in a corner by themselves was a desk for the West Point guys in the Army. And my dad dragged me over there and they're like, yeah, dude, man, do whatever career you want. Hell, we got helicopters, you can fly. I'm like, what? Great. So seriously, I, I was looking for a college education. I ended up applying to the military academy at, uh, at West Point. And darn if I didn't get in. So really, it was really about getting a good education and, and fulfilling a dream of lifelong military service. And here I am. Yeah. So tell us about the positions, the jobs, the roles that you held in the service. How did you become a helicopter pilot? And then what was the transition like, maybe even the decision process for transitioning to another career field in the military? Yeah, my career is a mess. Let's just, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way to split it. I became an aviator and I joke about it is I was in the top two thirds of my class at West Point. I was really a stellar cadet. <laughs> I mean that seriously. I was 600th of 900 and everything at West Point is based on your grades and your rank. But unfortunately, all those guys who studied really hard and were in the top ranks of the class, their eyes all went bad. There's a window for guys like me who spent their eyes closed 12 hours a day and that still made decent grades. So I scooted into the aviation branch in 1987 as the last mail in my class to get a slot, but slipping into the wire. And the aviation is a great branch. I got in there. I chose scout helicopters because I love the mission of flying in unarmed and unafraid in a helicopter to find bad guys. And so I started my career as a OH-58 Charlie scout helicopter pilot. And so I ended up going to Korea, which is incredible flying. Ended up in the 24th Infantry Division at Fort Stewart, uh, Hunter M. Airfield. Did Desert Storm with there with the first the 24th attack helicopter battalion amazing unit. We actually did some really tough fighting in Desert Storm. Actually fought the last battle of the war, the great Causeway battle where we basically obliterated the Hammurabi Republican Guard Division. So it's really a, quite an adventure. I actually took a break in service. I went around, ended up having some tragedy in my life, some losses, unfortunately, that led me to remarry later and uh, ended up in Atlanta in 1999 and said, you know, I'm going to give it a break. Took a break in service for about a year and a half, joined the reserves got involved in politics, you know, you, name it, you know, all those things. And and then 9-11 hit. And I actually got mobilized that day. I volunteered because I had not done my annual training. So I put my uniform on, dropped out of the mayor's race of Petrie City, Georgia, put my uniform back on, started making some phone calls about six months later, 
I was good fortune that my former boss, General David Petraeus, my professor at West Point actually, was the commander of the 101st Airborne. I kind of called around, ended up with the uh, 101st Aviation Brigade. The Apaches were all in one brigade. They had one Blackhawk battalion and like, hey, let's, let's put you in there since you know our mission. So I ended up being a Blackhawk guy for OIF-1. And like a lot of aviators, uh, a lot of people in the 101st Airborne, when we first arrived in uh, northern Iraq and Nino province in Mosul, once we got dust settled, General Petraeus encouraged us to start work with local civilians. So, you know, one day I'm fighting, the next day I'm building schools. And so we ended up controlling a large swath of the territory around Q West Air Base in northern Iraq. I ended up doing schools, essentially civil affairs, basically. And yeah, tying back to that earlier story, politics, right? So here I am in northern Iraq, 2003. I'm building schools. I actually built a clinic, or we did, I should say. I don't want to take credit for government money. But I need to fill the school, and I need to fill the clinic with supplies. So I reached out to my old political campaign and said, hey, uh, can you all send some supplies over? Well, being political types, I ended up getting this you know, Operation Fred, and 4,000 pounds of supplies got shipped to Iraq. This is you know, July 2003. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's the early days. Because that happened a lot, but we were like one of the first ones. But that ended up getting a lot of news. So local news picked it up. It's, it's this, the classic PR story, right? The local news picked it up. Like, oh, former mayoral candidate is now building schools. You know, when a journal picked it up. And then Kira Phillips from CNN picked it up in the paper. And the next thing you know, my family's in the studio in Atlanta on July 4th. I'm in Baghdad on top of the Palestine Hotel doing a live shot from Baghdad. And you can almost say the rest is history. Here I am with you. But I'm pretty good on camera. I, I think you just kind of slapped me around and propped me up. <laughs> and, and from there, General Petraeus said, hey, that guy does well on camera. He's doing some interesting stuff, working with the local Iraqis. It, it really fit his thematics for what we were doing in that phase of the mission, which was helping the Iraqis secure in the country, but also rebuilding the country. So I would find different reporters at my gate, like on a regular, they'd call me up and say, hey, Sky News is on the way. Talk to Europe. Like, okay. <laughs> and uh, so at the end of the tour, uh, it was funny. I was telling Kira Phillips a story on CNN one day about the Iraqis and how the children embraced us in the villages where I'd worked. And Kira, you know, broke down in tears on camera. And Petraeus wrote, he goes, man, that made me cry. You should be a PAO. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, and I sat there and looked at it. I had the break of service. So as an aviator, I wasn't on the fast track anymore, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the military, got to keep going. Yep. So, you know, it was a conscious decision. I said, you know, I looked at the public relations world, what public affairs did for the members of the community. It was great. I mean, many public affairs officers got to go to graduate school. You know, a truly usable job school. I love flying helicopters, but let's be honest, it's not exactly a usable job school in the real world. Right. <laughs> you know? So it was a conscious decision. I said, this is something I could do. I was late. I was relatively late in my career for that decision, which which caused some some friction with the public affairs folks. But I went to their school, and I, I ended up being the 101st Airborne spokesman. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I had the great good fortune to go back to Iraq and serve as General Petraeus' spokesman. And General Dempsey, Marty Dempsey, the day became a three-star. I took him and didn't screw his career because he ended up being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And some fascinating that got the opportunity because of public affairs. Thank God for public affairs and going to Harvard for grad school. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just just a great good fortune. Went back to Iraq a third tour, came back. Uh, my wife at the time said, you know, that's enough war. <laughs> you know, after four tours. And I retired in 2009, 2010. Had a job for about a year. And then I started my company. That is a wild story. I don't think people realize, even people in uniform, how you can navigate in and around, both in the service and then within the service in the in the job field that you have. Yeah. And I imagine that there was a big need for public affairs officers. I did a graduate program at American there in D.C., American University, and there were two active duty majors that were transitioning. One was transitioning from the infantry into public affairs, and one was transitioning from field artillery. And the Army was paying for them full-time yep. to, to go get that degree. 
and then was going to make them a public affairs officer. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a great branch. I mean, they embraced me when I came in. It was a little weird. I know when Petraeus got the idea that I should go to grad school, so that was his big thing, right? We all had to have advanced degrees. And he had a PhD. I mean, he's yeah, a, actually, a that's lawyer what and, a, and a scholar, you know? Yep. It's a funny story. So he was my professor at West Point when he was getting his PhD mm-hmm. as a young major. He was a brand new major, and I was a senior cadet. He was doing an international relations degree at Princeton. So while he was an economics professor, they had him teach one international relations like seminar. That's how I met him. Eight cadets. We'd come in final semester at West Point. We bring a big pot of coffee and we talk international relations for like an hour. And it was terrific. And then Petraeus, people ask me all the time, why are you Petraeus guys, if you will, so loyal to Petraeus? And I used to tell them the same thing. Was, he was loyal to us. You know, when you need a device, no matter how crazy it was, I could call him up and he'd, he'd tell you you're screwed up or whatever it may be. You know, I ended up in the hundred first with him twice and you know, I actually taught him how to fly. I was a young captain. I'd of course have him be his spokesman, which was, was just like, you know, it's a master, master shop. And then, and then frankly though, Going from Trace to Dempsey, you have two very different styles of leadership, worlds apart, and also very different approaches to public relations and public affairs. Yeah. So again, a, a year as their spokesman was like a master class in international communications, because that's what we were doing. Now, every time mm-hmm. we put out a statement, it had political effects that were beyond measurable. Yeah, for sure. I have a couple more quick questions before sure. we transition into business. But you spent four tours overseas. You've done quite a few things from going to West Point, which is obviously a tough program. Coming a helicopter pilot, transitioning in the middle of the career, what was your worst day in uniform? Well, you know, without question, you know, obviously the the I was a young lieutenant in the twenty fourth ID. We were doing the invasion of Iraq during Desert Storm during the Air War. General McCaffrey, the division commander of the twenty fourth, was concerned about the. We, we were literally using photocopied maps. We had black and white maps. I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> and That's so, crazy. yeah, it was crazy. We were invading a country with, with photocopies, and, um, and that was before GPS. I mean, just well, the dawn of it. We, you know, it would disappear in the middle of a mission. <laughs> um, so we decided to fly the Apaches into Iraq and do a recon of the invasion routes, essentially videotaping, to be candid, before the days of drones, too. And back in those days, the Apaches didn't really navigate for themselves. The scouts did. And so we had done one mission and it hadn't gone well because the Apaches, you know, to their credit, it's just not what they do. We campaigned, the scout pilots campaigned to let the scouts go with them in the next mission. Bearing in mind, at that time of year, it was zero illumination, open desert. Believe it or not, the weather would change because you're talking the winter in the desert. It actually gets foggy and people don't really mm-hmm. know what it is. Long story short, we decided to send two scouts in of my three my team came to me, and, and I was, in the end, although I was the commander, the platoon leader, I was the most junior experienced pilot of the crews. And so they sort of did a little intervention and said, look, you sit this out, we're going to go in because we had the most night vision goggle hours. And I did. I sat the mission out, and unfortunately, one of my air crews did find some weather separated from the flight, ended up crashing in the desert at that night in February 26, 1990. It was a long night waiting for them. When the aircraft came back and my guys weren't with them, it was really tough. And then we had to send a mission in broad daylight to go find them the next day. And of course, they were killed in action so uh yeah it makes for a tough tough go of it you know you have to you have to you know young man 25 years old you know trying to figure out okay we've lost i mean a third of my combat power that was a challenge as i was getting ready for it you know so we had a a lot to deal with in a short time and then literally two days later we're we're in it was it wasn't time to even mourn you know you just go into fight so yeah that was that was a really tough day no question about it. And I, I had many years more. I saw some really horrifying things over the years. But I think that first time where you come to the realization that this business that you're in is not fun and games, that people are doing very, very dangerous things for their nation, and sometimes they don't come back. Yeah, that's a big motivation, I think, even for this podcast, is just the responsibility, as you said, you had as a 25-year-old, which is really, in my mind, a young kid, 
Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah if you asked me at 25, I would have said I'm not. But now I look back at it. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. My son's 26, and I couldn't imagine. You know, I, was, I was younger than he was making decisions that were, you know, people got killed. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot. And you're not going home. You're not taking the rest of the day off. Nope. You have to drive on. Matter of fact, we, we, I, literally, I literally got called out of their memorial service because one of the challenges we had at that point, we were all aligned on the border, was you know, little, the Iraqis trying to figure out we were there and, and bump on the border a little bit. And so we were getting called out all the time to go spank them back in case they got too close to finding out where we were. So I literally got called out of the memorial service to jump in my aircraft, like, you know, the Battle of Britain kind of thing, you know, grab your helmet and jump in the helicopter and take off to go find the tank that was wandering around the border. War can be the, the highest the highs and the lowest the lows all in the same day. So let's talk about that. Everything isn't all doom and gloom. There's a lot of opportunities and good days in uniform. What was your yeah. best day? That's harder. I had such an unusual career from a cadet at West Point to, to work in the highest echelons of the Pentagon. I mean, I, I found myself sitting in meetings with the architects of the Iraq war. I mean, General Secretary Rumsfeld came over. I got to talk to him a number of times and sit in meetings where I was the only guy below the rank of general, you know, and I'm sitting there I'm literally against the wall going, I cannot believe I'm in this room, you know, you know if, this, if this ever got out, <laughs> you know. But it's funny. I, I always go back to this, um, this cathartic moment I had. I was a cadet at West Point. In the first two years of the West Point, I really resisted. I did, I, I'm just, my personality at West Point aren't necessarily the best mix. And I really was contemplating for many years of just quitting. You know, I used to joke that I, I planned on quitting West Point, but I kept putting it off and I just graduated by accident. I, yeah, you know, but what happened really, that the, there was a moment though. And the moment was I actually got sent to jungle school as a rising junior between sophomore and junior year. And I had the opportunity to go to jungle school in Panama. So we're down to Panama in the dirt, in the mud, you know, raining all the time, but just, as a young man, I really hadn't left the country. As a matter of fact, at that point, I'd never left the United States as a young man, a young kid from Missouri. And here I'm in Panama, and I'll never forget, there's, a, there's this amazing, they used to, I'm sorry, it's gone now, of course, because we closed down down there, but there was this amazing obstacle course there, right on the Pacific side or the Caribbean side. So we're doing this obstacle course, and at one point, you literally slide down these rocks, and you fall, you, you land in the water. And there's this rock shelf that goes out into the clear blue Caribbean waters, for about 25 feet and you have to run out there and then climb back up the hill. So you're literally running through the oceans about a foot deep. And at one point I come out and I'm running through the ocean. I look down, there's this clear blue water, fish swimming around my feet. I look up and there's this Spanish fort, you know, old Spanish fort on the hill. And I'm, I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm here. I, you know, you know what I mean? It's just like that moment. You're like, you're getting paid to do this. Yes. And, and, and you're like, that's, in the, in the, I, I just told you my story of sitting on the fly on the wall or getting to work for a guy like David Petraeus and being a titan of our nation. You know, those moments, and that, and that was that first time. I was like, oh, this is different. You know, this isn't just college. This isn't just a, you know, where people yell at you. They're, you're going to be allowed to see things like this. This very moment where you're standing in combat, you're working, but you're in a foot deep of the Caribbean looking at Spanish history. And I think that's the moment I said, you know what? I think I can do this for a living. I could dig this. And, and I kind of constructed a career from there, Frankie, of nothing short of adventure, Frank. I mean, if you look at my career, I mean, uh, Korea, Hawaii, my career is speckled by moments of just sheer awe of what I got to participate in as a young man. All right. So I want to get into some of the tips you have about business to help us get there. Maybe briefly to give us the, the cliff note version of when you left the service and how you wound up where you are today. I got fired. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a glorious story. I quit the Army twice. It did take the first time. And so the second time I quit, when I retired, I had a very methodical transition. I, I know how to transition, right? And so I started six months out, building my networks, let people know. I did, I did those things right. I didn't wait to the last minute. 
I started very openly talking on social media, like, hey, by the way, I retired on this date. Here's what I do. I'm really good at it. Get the word out. And it worked great. Sure enough, one of my colleagues was at a, a reception. He ran into a lady who ran a PR firm and she's like, man, I'm looking to hire. He goes, wow, my friend Fred Wellman's looking for a job. <laughs> you know, it, it worked. And he literally had seen it on Facebook. So I think I did it by the book or I could have written a book, I suppose. But so I had a job, literally I retired, had my ceremony. I went on transitional leave. I was working on Monday. And so my, I, I got a great job at a small firm here in the DC area that I thought would be a great fit. I picked a smaller agency instead of a larger one because I really want to learn the business side of things. Just, I just thought I'd learn more in a small agency. A lot of lessons learned. The lesson learned was wrong. But, <laughs> but having said that, that was my reasoning at the time. It started off well. Unfortunately, it was like one of the classic things a lot of us veterans see. I, we did a study with a client about four years ago. We found that 45% of veterans leave their first job within a year. Um, 75% leave their first job within two years in our study, our survey. I'm that guy. I lasted 11 months. And a lot of the reasons was a lot of the reasons that people don't do well when they transition. It was cultural issues. Good job. Money was great. I mean, the money was fantastic. Easy commute. You know, I took a country road to get to my office. But in the end, the issue was, unfortunately, the leadership of the company and I just didn't see eye to eye. And so I found myself um, literally fired slash quit. I you talk to. And I'm highly confident with my West Point and Harvard degree. I graduated with honors from Harvard. I was Patrice's guy. I will find a job tomorrow. Unfortunately, there's this little thing called a recession. And nobody was hiring. And then if you know the PR industry, generally agencies don't hire in the November, December timeframe, especially senior people, because contracts lapse. Uh, I think we mentioned in our, our little pre-talk that clients tend to look at their new contracts in the new year. So so everybody tends to hold their cards really close when that time is. Here I am in October looking for a gig as a, a VP, senior VP level, and I just wasn't getting a gig. And I kept noticing as I as I went to these interviews that there was no veterans in these agencies. And that really was the, the little kernel of an idea that bounced in the back of my little caveman brain was maybe if we had an agency that was led by a veteran that was understood military lingo, understood the defense world and the veteran world, then I'd serve other agencies as their subject matter expert. I mean, you know, there's digital agencies, there's advocacy agencies, there's grassroots agencies. What about a veteran agency or a military agency? And um, that's, that was the guy, and I was, nobody else was doing it, which is weird at the time, it was 2010. And uh, Scout Comms was born in my basement. What does veteran advocacy mean? It's a great question. You could call it lobbying, if you will. You could call it, but it really isn't. But advocacy means, for us, it's, it's truly written in our mission statement that we will help organizations empower and support veterans and military families. And so for us, that translates in our work to helping organizations build quality programs that are impactful. We're not talking cardboard checks at a gala. We're talking about getting veterans trained, getting military service members, you know, transition assistance, getting employment, getting healthcare. Mental healthcare is a big part of our business right now. We have two clients that are essentially mental health organizations. Whatever that means, it can translate to the actual work. We were really proud. One of the proudest things we've done in the nine years is we helped the Wounded Warrior Project and a coalition of 15 other veteran service organizations advocate on the Hill to get to allow service members, veterans who were wounded in action are unable to have children because of it allow them to use fertility treatments and individual fertilization and other treatments to have kids. And there was a little loophole in the law written in 1993 that didn't allow the VA, only VA, not DOD, not Congress, not the National Zoo, for God's sake, <laughs> only VA could not fund IVF and, and other birth assistance programs. There's a lot of politics behind that, but we don't need to talk about it. They had fought for eight years to get this rule changed because people were spending their own money. We had a, a wounded warrior paralyzed from the neck down. They got a free home from one of the nonprofits that, that donates homes to veterans. He literally mortgaged it so he could get $30,000 to have IVF treatment to have kids. 
So here we are, the nation, this guy was wounded in action. He's, he's unable to have children because of us, because of his service to our nation. He had to actually mortgage his house so he'd have kids. That's outrageous. No matter, no matter where you stand on abortion or whatever, we should not do that to our warriors. And to the great cause, we got him up on the hill. We worked really hard with Winter Warrior Project, a terrific organization. And uh, we convinced some people who had been reticent to help us to change it. And that year, they actually changed the law. So now, we call them our Scout Coms kids. There's a, there's a lot of kids out there that came out of the couple of our couples. One of our couples that couldn't have kids now have twins because of changing that law. So that's the kind of stuff we do, right? It's about doing the right thing for our veterans, their family members, and making sure their voices are heard. Yeah, well, when we say thank you for your service, I guess we mean that in two ways, your time in uniform and the advocacy that you're doing for veterans uh, after you've left the armed forces. I'll ask one last question. We'll bring this home. And this is in some ways based on a piece you wrote for the website Task and Purpose. Great guys. And we'll include it in the, in the show notes. When someone leaves the military, they really have two choices in pursuing a business career. Uh, one is to go to work for a business. And the other one is to start their own. You've done both, right? So, so how has the military prepared you for those? And, and what advice would you have for veterans looking at that transition window and pondering what they're going to do next? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the thing I talk about a lot of times is the thing about being a business owner is there's risk involved. Even today, nine years in business. I mean, we were talking about before. It's never easy. I, I'd love to say there comes a point where you're just sitting pretty, sitting on your yacht. I've heard those guys exist. I'm not one of them, so I may not be a very good businessman, actually. I have a yacht. <laughs> you know, darn it. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, funny thing. So so you have to accept that. And the thing about being a military leader, especially as an officer, I think, is is you're constantly weighing risk versus reward. Everything you do, especially as a pilot, as a helicopter pilot, literally every minute you're in that cockpit, you're constantly measuring risk. What is that noise? It, it's one of the funny things that drove my ex-wife crazy was if there's any rattle in a car, it drives me insane. It's like, because when something's rattling in a helicopter, bad things are about to happen, <laughs> you know, you know, so, so you're, and that's a risk, right? So I think risk is a relative term for a service member, a leader, right? It's like risk does, I mean, okay, I lose all my money. That sucks, but you know, I'm not dead, you know, so risk is relative to us, right? The other thing that we're really good at that I think has kept me alive as a businessman and helped me in the early days, especially is we're really good at planning, especially as again, I was a Lieutenant Colonel, right? I spent most of my career as a planner that I hidden in that aviation flying and sexy stuff was actually mostly staff work working as an operations officer, staying up at night, writing out op orders for Apache attack. I actually was the architect of the 101st whole system of rescuing down pilots and isolated personnel, you know, those kind of things. So you learn that, that accelerated planning process. So that's been very powerful because a lot of times I've found where I've had competitors come into the business or I've had to work quickly. That speed to target, I think, keeps us ahead of a lot of our competitors. I've found that my ability to take a situation, do the assessment, do the plan, have a plan, and then execute it in a pretty expeditious manner has been very beneficial. I talk about a lot with like subcontractors I work with. I've gone through a lot of subcontractors because I tell them the same thing. It's like, you have to work at my speed. You have to work at military speed. I don't have time for you to spend a week thinking about what you might do for a client. I, I need it in two days. By the way, that's hard for a lot of people. It's hard for me sometimes. But I think that's really helped me arm me for success as a businessman in a lot of ways is, is those sort of risk versus reward type things. You know, I think the military did prepare me. It, it's those subtle things they do. It's, it's, I think specifically right now, right? I think I told you we had, we've had some lean times the last couple of years, right? I miss paychecks. I don't like missing paychecks. I hate missing paychecks. But... I think a lot of my employees have remained loyal to me and, and stayed with the company through tough times because they know that the philosophy that leaders eat last, 
the commander is responsible for all things that occur in the unit, which means if something gets screwed up, which it does, it's, our industry is tough. People make mistakes. Everything from a typo and a tweet to a major error in decisions can really affect your business and your client. I've always been one because I was trained to at West Point. I was trained as a young officer and even a senior officer that I step in front of the bus. You know, I, I step in front of the bus for my employees when things go wrong. It's still my responsibility. And then two, I go hungry before they do. I'm real blessed that not one single employee has ever missed a paycheck in my company. I've missed a couple, <laughs> you know, which makes made my ex-wife not very happy. But here we are. So I think those kind of tools you come into business with makes the case that you could be a, I think it's made my business life a lot easier for the preparation of going into it. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you, Fred. Thank you I so would. much for coming on to the show. And thanks to all of you for listening to the Boots About Business podcast. If you are listening on the web, then you should know you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you are there, won't you leave us a review? It'll help the show and in turn help other veterans. And finally, if you know someone that's a veteran and now works in business or is an entrepreneur with a story to share, hit us up using the contact form on the show's website. That's bootsaboutbusiness.com. I am your host, Frank Strong. Until next time out here.